Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 1551,550. And you know what that means regular listeners, that means this is a 10th episode show where we discuss something of general interest. And today, we're going to discuss a serious topic, but uh, something of general interest, not about real estate. But in the intro, we've got a lot of good investing and real estate stuff coming up, time permitting. But I'm going to go through some good visuals and slides here with you in just a moment. But today, we'll be talking about the intellectual dark web. And uh, that that sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? It should, because many have noticed and argued that that is the era in which we are living in today, an era when debate is squelched and, you know, people uh, just, uh, so many of them seem to lack basic critical thinking skills. But you can't blame them. Why? Why can't you blame them? Because look at our school system. I mean, is it teaching any critical thinking skills? Of course not. Of course not. So let's dive in here. Okay, so I'm going to uh, blow up the screen. And and this, by the way, if you're listening on audio, this is also on video available on our YouTube channel as well. So uh, uh, and I will have some visual aids. I'll try and explain them to you if you're listening on audio only. And if you're on video, of course, please comment below and like and subscribe. We read all of your comments. I got to tell you, some of these people that comment, I'm sure it's none of you. They make the wackiest comments. Crazy stuff, isn't it? And if you've surfed around the internet for any amount of time, you know that's true. There's a lot of people that just make some just odd comments, frankly. Read below. You'll see them, I'm sure. And uh, hey, make some comments below. We love your questions. And by the way, one of the uh, questions we got recently was from Chun Chun Pak. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. It was a good question, Chun. So thank you for uh, submitting this question to us at jasonhartman.com slash ask. That's jasonhartman.com slash ask. And that question is, how can I see a list of linear, of Jason's linear real estate markets? Well, if I were to make a list of that, it would be very, very long because the vast majority of the world is a linear market. Most markets are linear. And then some markets are hybrid and a small number of markets, but they just happen to be the ones you always hear about, are cyclical markets. So better to do this by the process of elimination, right, than to do it by looking at a list of linear markets. Uh, just know that almost everything else is linear. But here's a trick. Here's a way you can easily tell which market is which. 
If a market is a very expensive market, if it has very high land values, that will always be a cyclical market. I cannot think of any exceptions to that. So when we look around the world, cyclical markets are, you know, the expensive California city, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, uh, Seattle, Vancouver, Canada. And then we look to the uh, the east and we see the expensive northeastern markets, New York, Washington, D.C., some areas of Connecticut, Boston, and then South Florida, where I live, we see Miami, Palm Beach, cyclical markets, okay? Around the world, we see Dubai, Paris, London, Hong Kong, you know, all of the, there are many others, right? But you get the idea, the trophy cities of the world are the expensive cyclical markets. The hybrid markets are places like Denver and Austin and Phoenix. Those are hybrid. Even Atlanta now would be considered a hybrid market. And I must tell you, we have properties in Atlanta a hybrid market, what many would consider to be hybrid, that makes sense the day you buy them. So go to jasonhartman.com for more info on those. But Chun, that is a great question. Thank you for asking it. Any other questions, leave comment below or go to jasonhartman.com slash ask and ask your questions. Okay, looking at the slides here, I want to go over a few things with you. Number one in our Empowered Investor Network Inner Circle Group, which is like a social platform. David posted two great things. And thank you for these, David. We were just having a conversation thread about big cities and the problems they're in, the defunding police, the civil unrest, family unit under attack. Everyone's just leaving these big cities. People have realized they don't need them anymore. And then he says at the bottom here, he says, just as Jason predicted in February, very early on in the game, yes, I was the first person I know of to make that prediction that the big cities would just just be over and people would flee them as soon as the lockdowns lifted. And by golly, I was right. Thank you for recognizing that, David. David's a great client of ours. You've heard him on the show before. Thank you for the uh, comment, David. Okay, so this is an interesting chart that Patrick posted in the Empowered Investor Inner Circle Group. And by the way, like I've said a few times, we will be inviting everybody to this group Soon, we're just getting together a little webinar to present it. Of course, we invited all the people from Meet the Masters uh, to the group. But this chart is really fascinating, Patrick, so thank you for it. It basically shows you the migration from the urban core areas, the cities, the high-density areas, to the sunbelt. And let's blow this chart up and take a look at it. It's, it's pretty fascinating. There's a lot of data here. On a future episode, when we have a little more time, we'll probably dig into this one a little deeper. But generally speaking, it shows you what, if you've been listening to my show for any length of time, you already know the answer, right? But this just reaffirms it. You know, people are moving to the areas with the highest net in-migration. And by the way, this is going to get even more pronounced as the statistics come in next year. And remember, we are in a census year, folks. Every 10 years is the census. And we haven't heard much about it with, with COVID and all the stuff going on. But we are actually in a census year, right? So wait until the census is compiled and you're going to see all of this become even more pronounced. So it's it's pretty darn amazing. And then where are people leaving? Well, the obvious culprits, right? The business unfriendly places, the places where government is intruding on your life, 
the places with high taxes, with high crime, with high numbers of idiots, okay? High numbers of idiots. One of them is my hometown. It's number one, Los Angeles, California. I grew up in LA. And uh, people are, are fleeing LA, high cost of living. Really, just where is the appeal of these places? A place like Los Angeles is riding on a reputation that hasn't been there since 1990 and before. And even then, in the 80s, it was riding on a reputation it earned in the 60s and the 70s. Remember all those great old movies and TV shows that glamorized LA and Southern California and the beaches? Remember the show Gidget? That was before my time, but hey, I I did see some reruns of it (laughs) when I was a kid. And look it up. Look up Gidget and just see how how, uh, California in general was portrayed back then. It's really fascinating. You know, the Beach Boys and and, uh, all this stuff. And yeah, it's, you know, it's it's just, it just hasn't been there in decades. And all it's done is it's just become worse and worse. But, you know, hey, it's not just there. People are leaving Miami-Dade, right? South of me. So, you know, people are obviously leaving New York and Santa Clara, California and Fairfax, Virginia. And and you ain't seen nothing yet, folks. Remember, this chart is automatically out of date because we don't have the census complete yet. The data's not compiled yet. It'll only become more and more pronounced. Now, on Thursday's episode, I talked to you about this. This is, this is huge. This is a big deal, folks. This is a big deal, what I'm telling you here. It's a big deal. You ready? Pay attention to this one because it's a big deal. I think I made my point. So Zillow says that nearly 2 million renters can become homeowners thanks to telecommuting, thanks to remote working. And so think about it. What this means is these people that were renting an overpriced place in San Francisco or New York City or LA, guess what they discovered and guess what their employers discovered? A wonderful thing. You know, there's a lot of good news coming out of this pandemic, out of COVID-1984. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'm going to get some hate comments. Comment below, make your hate comments. I'll even take the hate. Okay, you know, ooh, tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists, right? So out of the pandemic, out of COVID-1984. Uh, so, you know, some of the good things that come, come out of it, creative destruction, uh, people have realized they can live anywhere they want. They don't need to live in an expensive, overpriced city that's all on lockdown. It's no fun to live in where your danger of crime and civil unrest and, and catching a, a virus are terrible. You don't need to live in those places. You can move to the burbs the places where our people invest. And you can move to these places and you can buy a house. And that's going to push up prices in all those markets for all of our investors. A lot of you have been buying through our network for the past 15, 16, 17 years. And congratulations. Congratulations! (laughs) Hip, hip, hooray to you. So, uh, yeah, 2 million renters could become homeowners, and that'll push up the prices. And folks, don't worry about it. These weren't your renters, okay? These were never your renters that were renting 
the properties you purchased through our network. These were the people renting a place that was 600 square feet in New York or San Francisco or LA for between $3,500 and $4,500 a month. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Okay, Jason, lighten up on the sound effects. It's corny. A little bit of corny is entertaining, but not too much. I, I get it. Anyway, so these were not your renters, you know. Currently, the, the look at the article. Currently, priced out renter households made up 4.5% of all renter households in the U.S. And those households now have the opportunity to live in a more affordable market because they don't need to commute to work telling you this is this is really good news for us the article goes on to say for example 22% of renters in San Francisco are priced out of their own metro area but could afford monthly payments in a typical starter home in the US at only $725 a month zillow said This is because monthly payments on a typical starter home in San Francisco are at least seven times higher at $5,181. Wow. The great American move is underway. The mass migration to the suburbs is underway. The suburbs are the in thing. I called it in 2012, the rise of the suburbs, not because of COVID-1984, because I didn't know that was coming. I just knew that those cities were too darn expensive. The autonomous car was coming our way. It's not quite here yet. It's, It's taken a little longer than expected, but it's still coming. Okay, it's still coming. That's really amazing. Starter homes in some cities, such as Minneapolis, who would want to live there, civil unrestville, But Phoenix, that's a great city. Denver's a great city. I like both of those places. Are more affordable than in larger metro areas. In Denver, Zillow says starter homes in the city are more affordable than in the metro area. But even those priced out of the metro, 14.5% of renter households, could afford a typical starter home somewhere else in the United States. Now, remember, Minneapolis, Denver, Phoenix, those are all hybrid markets. They're in between linear and cyclical. They're markets that don't make sense to invest in now. But I tell you, years ago, our clients bought a lot of properties through our network in Phoenix and Denver. And congratulations, they made a fortune in those markets. So you did very well. Okay, well, one more thing since we're talking about the intellectual dark web today with our guests is this one. There's a lot in the news about fake book and evil Google and these big tech companies abusing their power, Amazon in different ways abusing its power. It's really sad and it's got to end. Antitrust legislation, uh, legislation, breaking these companies up, fining these companies, they have been ripping off the world for way too long. Not just ripping them off money-wise, but just ripping them off in many other ways for way, way too long. You know, look at this one. This is uh, Robert Graboyles. How do you say that last name, Robert? With the Mercatus Center at the George at George Mason Mason University. We've had some guests with George Mason on the show before, and Mercatus Center as well, specifically. An open letter on 
political discourse to my Facebook friends. And, you know, the Facebook censorship, it's just ridiculous. This has got to end. It is one of the biggest issues of our time. And regulating these companies, maybe like under common carrier laws, like the phone company, you know, the phone company doesn't get to shut down your Twitter account if they don't like what you say on the phone, because as long as you pay for it, you have the right to have phone service. It should be that way with these big, disgusting social media platforms, Facebook and Google, not really social media per se, but they control what we see. All of these companies do. It's absolutely, absolutely scary. So that is part of the topic with our our 10th episode guest today, where we talk about something of general interest. We're going to talk about the intellectual dark web. And if you need us, reach out jasonhartman.com. In the United States, you can call us at 1-800-HARTMAN. And let's get to our guest. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Steve Turley to the show. He is an internationally recognized scholar, speaker, and author of so many books, about 20 of them, give or take. He's one of the most exciting voices in today's intellectual dark web. He has a very popular YouTube channel with over 400,000 subscribers, New York Times bestselling author of, again, many, many books, including The New Nationalism, How the Populist Right is Defeating Globalism and Awakening a New Political Order. Obviously, we've seen this spread around the world and, uh, and certainly in the U.S., with another election coming up, I think there's a lot to talk about, uh, civil unrest, all, all kinds of crazy stuff. Steve, welcome. How are you? I'm great, Jason. Thanks so much for having me here. It's wonderful. Thank you. It's good to have you. And you're coming to us from Delaware. Is that correct? I am. Right. That's, it's through no fault of my own, I like to say. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, it's a desirable business climate. That's for sure. That's, a, that's true. We're the corporate capital of the world. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. More, more corporations squeeze into that tiny state than any other place. <laughs> that's right. Us <laughs> in Nevada, I believe, right? Yeah, you in Nevada. Yeah, and there's a couple others. But, you know, you've also got a book with another interesting title, The Abolition of Sanity. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I think nowadays it is um, it is really amazing. First of all, maybe I'll comment just the lack of critical thinking ability mm-hmm. among the populace. You see reporters stick a microphone in someone's face and, and you kind of can't believe it. I mean, didn't, didn't these people go to school? They have no sense of history. I mean, it's just uh, really amazing. Is that part of the new nationalism movement? Yeah, in terms of the the backlash against that, absolutely. One of the one of the major developments over the last three decades has been the comeback of what's called classical education. So this is the education of our founding fathers. It really was the education of Western civilization for a good fifteen hundred years. In, in, in its Christian form, it goes back twenty five hundred years in its Athenian form, its Roman form, uh, technically known as paideia. We use the word uh, for pediatrician. You know, how do you raise a child? Right. And back then, they believed that critical thinking was, uh, logic was essential to understanding the world. What, there was actually a stage in your education known as dialectics, and, and the sure. term is di- dialectio, to, to speak back and forth, to be able to listen to each other and to be able to sp- converse with each other to conversio. We've mm-hmm. lost that. That's died over the last few decades, because largely through a lot of modern educational theory. That's more or less been kind of pushed away 
by a growing movement of homeschoolers or these classical schools and the like who are saying, you know what, let's go back to those basics. Let's go back to some critical thinking so that we can actually talk to each other again and think soberly about life. And well, so I mean, you would think all the open-minded people on these college campuses would, uh, you'd think they would like this idea, right? And debate would be this healthy thing. They just squash debate, it seems like. Absolutely, yeah. D- debate is, uh, is just, uh, from this vantage point, what you're talking about on a college campus, is just another expression of white supremacy. Unfortunately, that's how people think today. It started in the 1960s uh, with uh, what's called the multicultural movement. And it really came out of the Frankfurt School. They came out during World War II. They were a bunch of very radical left-wing Marxists who ended up at Columbia University and a number of other universities. And they started teaching the idea that Western civilization is inherently oppressive. And they tried to form actively a, a coalition of the oppressed So it would be a multicultural coalition that would point out all the sins of Western civilization. So they got rid of the classical liberal arts canon, liberal in the good sense of, you know, liberating the mind to to read the good books and understand good music, poetry and the like. This is, again, this is the world of, given your channel, this is the world of Adam Smith and classical economics and the like. And they got rid of all of that and instead replaced it with really a radically sort of cultural Marxist curriculum. And I think in many ways, we're, we're reaping uh, the, uh, the whirlwind of that. Okay, we are. But tie in a couple things for us. You know, there's the Frankfurt School. There's this cultural Marxism concept that, you know, we're now hearing more and more about. And then there's the Christian philosophy of education, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, then Athenian before that, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. But kind of tie some of these things together. What do they have to do with each other? Uh, if you well, and then, and then, of course, Marxism. You know, so how, how did we get from Western society is bad? Okay, Marxism would oppose that. That's obvious. Where do the other factors come in in the Frankfurt School? And, and then what is what, what specifically is cultural Marxism? Yeah. Versus, usually people think of Marx as an economist, of course, right? Right, right. You got it. So there's a change there. All right. Let's see how, <laughs> let's see how we can boil all that down. Let's unpack these things. Let's unpack that, shall we? It's great. Let's start with that sort of classical you know, Western civilization, Christian education. Basically, the classical conception of the educated mind. So when I say classical, I'm talking about Athens, Jerusalem, Rome, you know, going all the way up to, say, like the 18th century um, and uh, the founding of our republic and all that good stuff. The kind of education that marked our civilization was one that centered on what we call wisdom and virtue. So wisdom was understanding the divine meaning and purpose in the world it generally was a Christian theistic conception, but it was it could be very it could be translated into Jewish terms, Islamic terms, Hindu terms, because all forms of education up to about the 18th century believed the world was filled with divine meaning and purpose, which provided the pattern for how we ought to live our lives. And if we conform our lives to that divine meaning and purpose, we've cultivated what's called virtue within our, ourselves. And we line up that virtue with wisdom. Wisdom is understanding that divine meaning and purpose. Uh, the, the framers refer to it in the, in the Declaration of Independence, talking about nature and nature's God. We hold these truths 
to be self-evident, that, mm-hmm. a, that a rational mind can see that the human person has innate, innate dignity and worth, that the world has a moral obligation embedded within it. And we're supposed to conform our lives into a harmonious relationship with that divine meaning and purpose. And our curriculum, our school curriculum, we're mediators to facilitate that harmonious relationship. And so the basic characteristic of that worldview was a radical continuity of of time. To be a conservative, for lack of a better term, because I think this kind of education was conservative, to be a conservative in the broadest sense of the term was to be a traditionalist. And a traditionalist is one who believed that there are certain beliefs, ideas, and practices of the past that are indispensable to our human flourishing in the present and the future. So you see this lovely continuity between past, present, and future. It's not like we're traditionalists are necessarily stuck in the mud and just living in the past. I'm, sh- I'm sure that can happen, but conservatism and traditionalism has the future every bit as much in view as the past, but what they do is they see a continuity going on there. What happens in the 18th century is very fascinating. It's in Europe, it's going on in Europe, And it's called the Enlightenment. We all know it. And what came out of the Enlightenment, however, was this notion of modernity and and the modern world. So So 1800s. So we're talking 18th. Yeah. So it's 18th century. So we're talking 18th, 1700s, 1800s and the like. Technically, who was the who was the sort of the person behind this. And, and oh my, you have so many. So Immanuel Kant would be a big one. David Hume, the Scottish uh-huh. philosopher, would be another. And what is so characteristic about this movement is they believed that they could redefine knowledge in such a way that excluded anything that couldn't be scientifically verified. So what scholars think is the kind of the lasting inheritance of the Enlightenment was the notion that scientific rationalism was really the one-size-fits-all way of understanding reality. And if you had anything other than something scientifically rational, then it's superstitious, it's personal, you know, it's tribalistic, it's savage. It certainly doesn't belong in a new vision of civilized man. So you end up having this idea of a modern world as over and against a pre-modern world that then got relabeled as the Dark Ages, as over and against the Enlightenment. And so what you'll notice there, what's so fascinating, is in contrast to the way we did Western civilization for all those centuries, now you're seeing a radical disruption in history. So now uh, history, anything prior to this sort of I like to call it the first great awakening, <laughs> you know, the first, first kind, yeah, right? The first kind, the, this enlightenment, this way we woke now to a whole new way of looking at the world has rendered everything else prior to it in the past as undesirable. It, it, has, it no longer has any relevance to what we're doing today because scientific rationalism is the one-size-fits-all way of understanding the world. That gives birth then eventually to a new education system that gets highly influenced by Marx, because what Marx is, is he's the 19th century outworking par excellence of that view. Anything that preceded the modern world is tainted, it's bigoted, it's filled with all kinds of inequities and all kinds of uh, ways people are abused uh, in terms of you know, social power and, and the like. 
So, so these modernists then, I mean, would it be fair to call them modernists? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, They would downplay the role of uh, philosophy and they would downplay the role of the Magna Carta, I guess. Yep. And trial by jury and all of these great things these evil white religious men gave us. (laughs) That's right. You got it. Because again, anything prior to the Great Awakening, and it happens first in the 18th century in that sense, is now deemed to be, um, you know, inescapably tainted with all kinds of superstitions and social evils and the like. This is where you get the idea that the age of religion is a a world of just war and savagery and burning witches and all that. Whereas the age of reason is, you know, Star Trek, you know, the the final frontier. And we're all going to find this wonderful universal harmony through the use of reason. Now, again, there's wonderful things that come out of this. It's not a, you know, terrible. I like antibiotics, you know, I like or whatever it happens to be. You know, it's a super travel and and being able to visit places in the world that you you and I were talking. I mean, you you span the world in a way that no human being could have done. Uh, just really in the end, just a hundred years ago. Right. So, so it's, it seems the way you're presenting it, it's almost hard to debate one of these modernists because. Who could deny the value of science? Science is very valuable. We all appreciate science. How do you say no to that? You know? it's, a, it's a fantastic question. And that's exactly what happened in the 1970s. It's really interesting. And this is primarily through a philosopher named uh, Francois Lyotard in a publication from 1979 called The Postmodern Condition. Mm-hmm. And what he found was when he surveyed Western populations on the issue of, do you believe scientific rationalism is the one true way of understanding the world? People started denying it. They said, no, no, that, it, it, that's impossible. And when he asked why, when he probed, he found that there was extraordinary disillusion with World War I, World War II, Vietnam and the like. Remember, the 20th century was supposed to be the century of unparalleled progress and international harmony based on scientific reason. It ended up being the bloodiest century in the history of humanity. And then we had a Cold War where we could you know, blow the world up several times. Over. But, but they, they would blame conservatives for that. Sure, sure. And granted, they may, but um, unfortunately, they couldn't persuade the world's populations. The world's population actually ended up blaming modernity. They blamed the idea of a one-size-fits-all political and economic and knowledge system for all people, times, and places. We went into the 19th century with that confidence. I mean, in many ways, that was propelling a lot of the colonialism of the 18th century. There's a one-size-fits-all civilizational system for all the savages of the world. Well, by the end of the 20th century, we just don't believe that anymore. And so we've collapsed into something called postmodernism, or I should say modernity has collapsed into postmodernism. So before before you move on to that, it doesn't sound like that would equate with the new world order concept then. Or the, the globalist concept. Or Very what? good. So the glo- right, you're absolutely right. So the globalist vision is still the modernist vision. So that to understand this insane time we're living in, trying to make sense of it, what we have to understand right now is we've got a clash, and the clash, and the, and people like Sam Huntington, you know, the Clash of Civilizations thesis back in 1992. 
if you guys, if your listeners are familiar with it, it's very fascinating. So you had Francis Fukuyama from my old alma mater, Johns Hopkins. He was coming out after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union, and he declared it the end of history. And that mm-hmm. thesis was, we finally arrived to the one-size-fits-all political and economic system for all people, times, and places, and that's Western liberalism. Its chief competitor, Soviet communism, collapsed. It's dead. It had another competitor, the, the Nazi fascism. That died in the war. So now, this sounds okay so far. So, so far, and then Samuel Huntington comes in right around the same time of Harvard, and he says, not so fast, Francis, not so fast. What happened to the Soviet Union and its breakup, and, it's, and uh, Russia lost a third of its uh, nationhood in yeah. oh, literally yeah. overnight. We've yeah. had 35 countries added to the world map since 1991, yeah. and, the, and just this balkanization that we saw happen as a result of Samuel Huntington said, that's what's going to happen to the world. The world is breaking up. And it's not because liberal democracy won. It's because modernity lost. And the Soviet Union and liberal democracy, Western liberal democracy, were both rooted in this conception that there's a one-size-fits-all political economic system for all people, times, and places. Nazi fascists had their version. It died in the war. Then you had the Cold War and the standoff between two different versions of it. One collapsed on Christmas Day, 1991, and Samuel Huntington said, just wait, the EU will begin to collapse, and even the United States may begin to balkanize because so much of our structures, our political and economic structures, are based on this 18th century Enlightenment modernity. And it seems that in many respects is what's happening. But the, but, it, the important- but, in a, but in a way that seems more democratic because mm-hmm. the ability for a state in the US, for example, to secede from the union, if they don't like the way it's run, you know, Texas can go and and you know, like I've said many times, if if Texas were to leave, it'd probably become the Hong Kong of the United States in, <laughs> in the sense that it'd be this economic powerhouse because it's a business friendly place, or at least it used to be. Everything's falling apart, <laughs> but even Texas, because all the Californians have moved there. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, right, they're very upset about that too. Yeah, I know, I know, yeah, lots yeah. of Texas, but they, you, they yeah. Right. You got it. That's one of the key differences about the new nationalism than the nationalisms of the past. I, I mean, I'm like, I'm not a fan of the EU. I don't think that. I think that's a failed experiment from the beginning. You know, you've got slacker countries, if you will, with productive countries. And it's like a welfare state. You, you know, they, they don't want to pull the weight of, of the slackers that, you know, want to take a siesta every day or retire at 48 years old. That just doesn't work. And he, and he can't put all these currency, you know, make this all one currency. I mean, it's just impossible. Yeah. You're articulating the argument of Nigel Farage of, in 2016. And when June 23rd, uh, more Brits came out and voted to leave the EU than had ever voted for a British politician in history. Right. So, uh, so where would the, so that's a nationalist concept. That's a nationalist. That's and and uh, by the way, I was all for Brexit. I right. think that on Facebook, I wrote, you know, when it happened, congratulations, Britain got their independence. We got ours 240 years ago or whatever. <laughs> right. and now they got theirs. And that was true taxation without representation. Yeah. Basically, you know? yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. No, you got so, it. You got so it. So would, would I be agreeing with a modernist then? You'd be agreeing with a postmodernist. So oh, the modernist okay. is the EU. Modern is the one size fits all. Modernity is dead. 
Moderni's dead. That's what Sam Huntington's thesis is. Moderni has died in the hearts and minds of most people. We still live under its structures, but our sentiments, our inclinations, our dispositions are postmodern. I see it with my students all the time. No one, I can tell you, there's no, I can't remember a single student in the last 10 years that ever came into my classroom said, yep, there's only one, there's a one size fits all political, economic, and meaning system for all people's times and places. Everyone's deferring back to culture, custom, tradition, identity, and the like. And that's post-modernity. And so post-modernity is breaking up modernist structures. And it can be good, it can be really neat stuff, i.e. Brexit and the like, or it could also end up in a lot of conflict like we saw in the balkanization uh, situation in the late 90s. And to a certain you mean extent, in the Balkans, in the Balkans right, itself, right, yeah, right. properly. You're not speaking. talking about balkanization like a concept. The ball, so, I, yeah, I'm uh, drawing it from the, the uh, geography right. to the kind of balkanization we may be seeing here in the United States. Mm-hmm. We talk about like a Texas, but yeah. really, what's going on? It seems to me is is an it's kind of an ethno tribalist sort of breakup. What's going on here? So, if the world is going postmodern then really in the end, you only have two choices. It's very interesting. Either we're going to go back to the our sense of national sovereignty like Brexit did, and the way President Trump was arguing, the then candidate Donald Trump was arguing in 2016, where we're going to reassert our border security, our economic security, right, bringing manufacturing jobs back home and the like, and our cultural security, celebrating our nation's cultures, customs, traditions. Either we're going to go there as over and against some kind of globalist, you know, EU, UN kind of structure, or we could break up even further in what are called ethno-nationalisms or tribalisms. And that's really seems to be to be the new battle lines that, that's forming in a postmodern world. And I think that's how I understand Black Lives Matter movement, and La Raza, and a number of other movements. That well, actually, you know, there's only one group that doesn't have representation in this uh, era, and that is uh, yours truly. <laughs> yeah, the white male, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah and, that goes, uh, and Jason, that goes back, interestingly enough, to the Frankfurt School, because you had someone like Herbert Marcuse, who wrote his work on tolerance, and you can read it online, it's from the 1960s. Most scholars think it's the beginning of political correctness. It's a treatise for political correctness. And he said, the only way you're going to overthrow the dominant uh, Western cultures, creating that coalition of minorities we were talking about. But he knew that coalition of minorities had nothing to do with each other. So they needed a common enemy. And for him, the common enemy was the white male. And that's why white supremacism and male patriarchy are blamed for every sin under the sun. So that's... That's how it sort of ties together there. So you, so you really think, I mean, as much as we've got this uh, diversity training and multiculturalism and these mass immigration movements into, you know, European countries, into the U.S., of course, that's actually backfiring or is there's a, a I mean, these are cross currents, so it's complicated, of course. Exactly. But I, I mean, you look at what's happened in Sweden and it's a disaster. The crime rate has soared. And, you know, I know I'm going to get some email from some person that doesn't understand, that doesn't really look at the real news, um, that doesn't follow Peter Sweden on Twitter, for example. All right, yeah, but I know um, Peter, yeah. You know, and, and, and just doesn't know anything uh, because a lot of this stuff, it's amazing how a lot of this stuff just is not reported. You know, these car burnings, torching cars in certain areas of outside of Paris or in Paris suburbs, 
you know, uh, what's going on in Sweden, what's going on in a lot of these places, it's just not reported. It's amazing how powerful this force is. Like everything you said is the opposite of what the globalists want to do. These super powerful people like the George Soros types of the world and, and you know, and maybe the Rockefellers and, you know, whoever else they want to, you know, and UN agenda 21, they want to force everybody together. And they want right. to have a one world currency and a one world government because it's just a lot easier to manage. Exactly. And, yeah. and as long as they're at the top of the, you know, the, the structure, great for them. But yeah, it's, it's, the ul- it's the ultimate corporation. It's the ultimate globalist corporation. They're all, I mean, all globalists. This is, it's interesting because this ties into the difference between economic Marxism and cultural Marxism. The fundamental difference between the two at one level is cultural Marxists made their peace with the economy. <laughs> they made their peace with money. <laughs> they're, they're all billionaires today. The Brazilian philosopher Olavo de Carvalho loves to point that out. He said, you look at the, the top richest people in the world. And they're virtually all left-wing liberals. They're virtually all of them. I mean, I think I just read the other day, Jeff Bezos' uh, ex-wife had just given all these billions of dollars to uh, to $1.7 billion a day. Mackenzie, now Mackenzie Scott, is uh, seemingly a lot more generous than her (laughs) ex-husband. It's it's actually really quite quite shocking how stingy Jeff Bezos is. Mm. Oh, wow. And and what a Scrooge he seems to be. I mean, listen, I don't know the guy, obviously, but, you know, just from what you can see in the world, I mean, it took him forever to start a foundation. Mm. And and listen, you know, he doesn't have to give any of his money away, okay? I'm just saying, comparatively, the fact that, you know, he, he wouldn't give people $15 an hour wages, the working conditions are not so great by any means, People, you know, there's been a suicide at his company. I mean, you know, it's with with a note that this was the reason I can't stand the pressure of working at Amazon. You know, and of course, he's built a great company. I mean, you know, there's sure. No, but when you're that rich, don't you have a little obligation to give back just morally speaking? Uh, in, in, in Western writing, right, from a vantage point of Western civilization, too much is given, much is required. Absolutely. And, and all of these people, um, you know, they spout all these liberal ideas but yet they they have all these tax schemes where they pay no tax. You know they've got they're, they've got one entity in Amsterdam and another in Ireland, and you know they they're, they're pulling all this money, sucking it out of the of the economy that gives them all their money. It's yep. it's completely ridiculous. I mean, Amazon is subsidized by the post office. You know it's, we're all paying for their business. You you um, got it. You got that's internet that our government developed. Um, that that's the elite. The, so the political elite, um, it, they factor in big time with this. We were uh, talking earlier about the Yellow Vest uprising in France. That's that's really what's pushing it. What one of the th- reasons why the Republicans have been able to do so well over the last few years? Again, Republicans shouldn't even exist as a party if you think it through, especially as a nationalist party. If 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 the world was as woke as our media tries to constantly uh, present it as. But, and again, remember, this is a corporatist globalist media. They're, they're very much part of this. It's a Soros media. Exactly. exactly. So they're, they're only going to, they're only going to put forward a pro globalist vision of the world. Uh, But what we're finding is that there is a massive backlash against that, particularly among white workers, white working men uh, without college degrees they came out and voted for Trump at levels we've never seen before. So you had almost 200 counties and 
Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, the so-called blue wall that voted Democrat Mm -hmm. for the Democratic presidential candidate in every single election since the 1980s, turn around and vote by a 20-point margin for for Trump. This is, and we're seeing the same thing in Europe. We're finding that it's the white working class that tends to be voting for the nationalist populist parties. They've defected from the left. Labor in Britain does not have labor as a constituency anymore. Post-Brexit, they all they all defected over to the Conservative Party or to the Brexit Party. The group that, well, the two groups that need to defect from the left are the African-American community and the Hispanic American community. I mean, the Democrats are screwing those two groups. I mean, it's terrible what they've done. They've just they've just ruined, you know, entire demographic cohorts. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. That's Getting one of the things that, made it- that is another thing, you know, getting the message out in this kind of media environment is almost impossible. Sure, sure. But the old media is doing a, a fantastic job. I, I think the network society, um, scholars like uh, Manuel Castells and Jan van Dijk, these very interesting scholars. They, they're scholars of the internet, and they are fascinated by how the flattening out of information, so it's no longer centered at you know CNN headquarters in Atlanta, for example, or at the New York Times. It's all been flattened out so that you can have citizen journalists, uh, just a kid with his camcorder you know, running around and, and changing the world in many respects. That that has that has redefined news, um, especially yeah. in, in social right. media. Yeah. It has. It, you have to understand in, in 2016, of all the newspapers that endorsed uh, the presidential candidates, two endorsed Trump. Two. That's the true. mainstream media had a monopoly against Trump. And he won. And he didn't just win. He's the first Republican since 1988 to get over 300 electoral votes. Mm -hmm. So so there's something going on there where the media, every poll over the last 20 years shows that the media's trustworthiness has imploded. Oh, it's, it's terrible. It's I mean, ter- the media People is don't trust it anymore. They yeah. just, and so they're going to podcasts like yours, channels like mine and the like, to, right. to get a sense, not just to get lectured to, but to actually participate in the understanding and the discussion of our world and what's really going on. And that's killing the uh, the major mainstream Marxist media, as I like to call it. A couple things there. You know, I would love to believe that that is happening. However, unfortunately, the uh, tech tyranny we're all living mm. under is trying its best to defeat that. Yeah. Um, you know, the disgusting Twitter organization, Facebook, Google, these are the scariest companies on earth. They are censoring medical treatments, literally yeah. killing yeah. people. Literally, yeah. Literally yeah. killing people or making people suffer, at That's least. Right. They are squelching, squelching speech. You know, Jack Dorsey is threatening to shut down the president of the United States Twitter account. I, I mean, this is unbelievable. Yeah, it's absolutely unbelievable. Now, but think about it, though, Jason. Can you imagine if Trump uh, opened up a parlor account or, you know, or a Gab account or something like that? He hasn't done that yet. But if he starts to Gab, I don't even know what parlor is. Yeah, so these are these alternative kind of Twitters, alternative Facebooks and and so forth. Alt tech, as, as it's referred to, as opposed to big tech. 
Um, they'll, they'll only be old tech for so long. Um, they, they can, they can end up popping literally overnight. And so it'll be interesting to see. It is frustrating. I don't, I don't ever, I do, uh, find in with my channel, I try to be a corrective to a lot of the pessimism that's out there. So I, I swing over to the other side, but I do like to remind everyone we are in a clash between postmodern resurgent nationalist populism on the one hand against this, you know, this very stubborn hangover from modernity called globalism on the other. And the clash could be very, very frustrating. But in the end, uh, they, the modernity upon which they base their lives has died. It's rotted out. And if the roots are rotted out, it's only a matter of time before the globalists. Well, gosh, you know, I, I hope you're right, but I, I'm not so sure. I mean, look at the look at the age demographics. I mean, you look at the the. I don't know what the Gen Zs are like yet. I don't think anybody knows for sure what they're like. Gen Generation Z, the youngest. Uh, group, but the the Gen Y, the millennials, we know what they're like, okay? And uh, you know, and I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm a little older than a millennial. Th these people have been brainwashed by just crazy educational concepts, and um, you know, they they just squelch free speech everywhere you look, and they're going to be running the world in a pretty short time. So yeah, okay, so so good. So you have all right. So we'll be good economists here, right? All right. So you're but you're assuming a static profile for the rest of their lives. That's not what we see. So Matthew Goodwin and and Roger Eatwell in their study on nationalist populism. They're British scholars. It was published in 2018. They found studies that that found that we become on average about one or two percent more conservative per year after age 21. That's happened before, and maybe you'll be right about that with millennials. Maybe they'll grow up, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I, I've seen it in just uh, just personal anecdotes with, oh, someone I know very close to me, big Obama supporter, left-wing Democrat, never ever voted in, in Republican or conservative, and was having to sit through an HR presentation on, uh, on what is it, the, the uh, not white guilt, what is it, the new one now, um, uh, white fragility, that's yeah, it, yeah. white fragility. And she had it. She said, that's it. I cannot take this nonsense anymore. It's, it's and it was a fascinating, it just added, you know, anecdote into, the, into, into, and this person I would say is in late 30s, uh, early 40s, and just has absolutely had it. This person's also reading Thomas Sowell at the moment too, which I thought was pretty cool. He's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. So, so I, I things are dynamic, and the thing to keep in mind is that globalism requires, and liberalism in general, requires a modernist conception of the world for it to continue. And what we're finding is that modernist conception is breaking up, and liberalism is breaking up. That cultural Marxism is breaking up into tribalisms. And you're going to find, I think, increasingly that whites and blacks are going to be forced into kind of different, almost this new form of segregation, but now on black terms. It's a very fascinating thing. When BLM first formed in 2015, I think it was at the University of Missouri, when they were first coming out after the whole, you know, Michael Brown situation in, in Ferguson, one of the fascinating things that emerged from there is resegregated dorms. 
They demanded that the dorms be segregated according to race, orientation programs reset, uh, resegregated. I mean, that's such a terrible idea. Like, yeah, it's, it, don't, don't but you that's, want people to become friends? I mean, my best childhood friend was African-American. Of okay? course. Yeah. And, and you know, don't you want people to mix? And, like, isn't that the point of multiculturalism? Exactly. And this, well, multiculturalism was modern, you see, and it's unraveling. Now, what's trying to hold it together is civic nationalism. Uh, 90% of our nations are polyethnic. And civic nationalism has a flag and it has a national anthem and it has all these wonderful civic symbols that hold our country together in a unified culture, even though we may be of multiple ethnicities. Generally, there's a dominant, you know, ethnocultural tradition in there, but ethnocultural traditions tend to be net positives. I like to point out to people that the, the last 20 years of sumo wrestling champions have either been Bulgarian, Estonian, Polynesian, or Mongolian. <laughs> Japan went 20 years without a sumo wrestling champion. They they ended that that uh, you know that curse that Boston curse. What's that? Be a country in 70 years. They they don't have any children. Granted, now, granted, that's something you can't now. Have a country without people. Period. Exactly. Exactly. Well, one of the things we're finding in Europe is sort of the resurgence. Uh, for lack of a better term, going to these pro-life sentiments that are going on where, um, where abortion is being highly restricted and people are actually being subsidized for having families. Hungary's doing this, Poland's doing this, Russia, Russia. Russia big time. And they're reversing their uh, demographic decline uh, majorly. As a matter of fact, if I recall, uh, Hungary has seen a 40% spike in children just in the last 10 years since they started instituting that that supplement, that practice. And so what you're, I think what you're seeing is you're seeing nations having to come to terms with the fact that, look, if we're going to be really, really going to be modern and we're going to be hip and we're going to think, you know, nation doesn't matter, culture doesn't matter, identity doesn't matter. We can all just be consumers and live in one big glorious, you know, global mall. They suddenly realize they're not going to have a nation anymore. They're, they're not going to be a people anymore. Italy is finding this out. And so what you're seeing is, again, a backlash, a postmodern backlash that's saying, no, nation, culture, custom, tradition are important. This is what gives our lives meaning and purpose. And no, we don't have white privilege. We have what's called inheritance. And inheritance is something we want to pass down to our children because we believe it'll give their lives meaning and purpose as well. That backlash is stronger than ever, and I think it's this clash that we're seeing that's going to play out into November and, and through the foreseeable future. Fascinating stuff. You know, um, about 20 years ago, I wrote an article uh, for a, uh, a trade magazine called The Monologue Media Versus the Dialogue Media. And remember, this is before social media, but it's interesting to see how this has played out two decades later. And basically, my thesis was, the right side of the political aisle, the conservative side, controlled the blogosphere and talk radio. And the left side of the spectrum controlled the one-way media, the monologue media, whether it be newspaper publishing. Yeah, I know there's an op-ed page, big deal, but, you know, largely it's one way. You know, book publishing, television, you know, anything where you can't really call in and question ideas, okay, was controlled by the left political side. But where you could call in and challenge the host of the talk show, for example, or you could write a comment on a blog, that was controlled by the right. 
And the, the thesis was that the ideas on the right side of the spectrum could withstand the scrutiny of debate. But on the left side, like, look at Air America, the old left-wing radio network. It just totally collapsed. Like, no one was interested. Okay. You know, I guess people don't want to just hear Rachel Maddow hating everybody forever, right? Uh, they want to actually hear some solutions. And, and so it's just kind of interesting how that developed. And the left has really had to kind of get its act together and mobilize its army, and they have, you know, to combat this uh, marketplace of ideas, which is naturally happening on the internet, but now, you know, they control the big tech companies and right. they're just exerting their, their muscle everywhere you look. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a really weird time we're living in. What are we going to look back at, Steve? Wrap it up for us. Well, there you go. I do. I think we're, we're going to see 2016 in particular as, uh, as the flashpoint when, when things really began to to change. Uh, the, the right and left categories started to change. The left began to unravel in many ways into kind of a neo-tribalist ethno-nationalism. The uh, right, as we know it today, turned more into a civic nationalism, defending our nation, our culture, our customs, our polyethnic traditions and the like. And uh, in the end, I think it's, uh, it's going to go the way of civic nationalism. I think we're going to win. I do. I think especially with the demographic revolution that's going on among conservative religionists, particularly Christians. Um, we're seeing, uh, for example, uh, uh, predictions that there'll be over 300 million Mormons in the United States by the end of uh, the century and 300 million Amish at the end of next century, along with a massive boom of evangelicals. So we're going to become more and more uh, traditionalist. I, there is a joke in there somewhere. The United States is going to be evangelical, Mormon, and Amish. I know there's a joke in there. I haven't figured it, it sure out. It sure doesn't feel that way to me, but okay. <laughs> You're right, right, right. It's, well, again, it's demographic, so it takes time. It's micro It's watching a kid grow. And, uh, and then there's just going to be some fixed points, some flash points where you go, wow, things have changed. So I think, uh, I think come November, uh, we're going to be very surprised at the result there. And uh, I think we're going to continue to well, see last, that. last time we were too, because, you know, yeah. uh, the Trump voters just, they just got sick of being shouted down by haters and yeah. they just went in and voted. They shut their mouth and they voted. And it's, on, and it's only gotten worse since 2016. Right, right. That's, that's true. And listen, I mean, if the Democrats can't put up a better candidate than Joe Biden, <laughs> you must be kidding me. I mean, <laughs> You know, it's, I can understand if you hate Trump. Trump right, is right. Offensive, okay, he offends people, and I wish he would stop doing that. But you know, Joe Biden. I mean, yeah, all people. Right. Are you kidding me? Uh, that's just crazy. Uh, talk, talk, talk about an old white man. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Yep. Uh, and all the Democrat candidates were old white men, all older than that's Trump. Right. Interestingly, that's right. <laughs> it's ironic. Name. Steve, give out your website. They can go to Turley Talks, my last name, T-U-R-L-E-Y, talks.com. And they can uh, also check us out on uh, YouTube. Just punch in Dr. Steve Turley. Dr. Steve Turley, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jason. My pleasure.
Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.